we finished Proverbs chapter 5, and so we will start off with Proverbs chapter 6. And I will read the first five verses because they are a unit. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the flower. Basically, this involves co-signing a loan. The obvious advice there is if someone asks you to co-sign a loan and you are so foolish as to do it, figure out a way to get out of it as quickly as you can because you are in grave peril. When I teach this to young people, if somebody doesn't have the credit worthiness for a lender to trust him, why should you? And what typically happens is they will come to you with a sob story and prey upon your friendship, but the fact of the matter is, is if they were a decent credit risk, they would be able to get a loan from anybody reasonable, and the fact that they can't is dangerous to you. What I tell the kids is the only loan you should ever co-sign is, for example, when Matthew bought his first car. I co-signed his loan. First off, I have lots of influence over Matthew. And the second one is for a father to help a child get started and establish himself financially is perfectly fine. This is talking about somebody who's a deadbeat and comes to you because nobody else will lend to it. Now, full stop, shift gears. I was saying on Shabbat, Rabbi Sachs talks about there being three voices in the Bible. The voice of the prophet, the voice of the priest, and the voice of the king. Each of those three voices does something different. The priest, for example, is concerned with clean and unclean, holy and profane, and teaching God's laws. So when priests are writing, those are the kinds of things that they care about. Is this legal or not legal? Is this clean or unclean? And is this in accordance with the law? The second voice is the voice of the prophet and the prophet arises when God needs to say something to the people or to the nation. I don't personally know of any cases in scripture where a prophet arises when you're doing a really good job. So if everything is really going well and you're doing great and so forth, you don't hear the voice of the prophet. It's only when things start to go south that God will send a prophet to try and straighten you out and get you back on track. A prophet can come from anywhere. A prophet can be a male, a female, just whoever God decides is the one to deliver the message. God can tap on the shoulder and say, you're going to be a prophet, and I want you to speak. Of course, a priest has to be a male descendant of Aaron doesn't matter how much you love God, doesn't matter how much you know, doesn't matter anything. If you're not a male descendant of Aaron, you're not a priest. Just the way it is. Uh, the third thing about a prophet is the words of a prophet are for a time and a situation. So a prophet shows up in Israel when things are going badly 
and a prophet then will speak words that's designed to correct them. So the words he's speaking are specific to a situation. They are not typically eternal. The words of a priest are. He's talking Torah, and that's forever. The words of a prophet are situational. What typically happens with a prophet is the prophet will go to Israel and will start trying to rebuke them. Yeshua, for example, was a prophet, and his first words to Israel were, repent and turn from your wicked ways. When they ignored him, which happens in the middle of Matthew, when they ignored him, he then switched modes, and he quit speaking locally to the situation. You guys need to repent, you need to quit doing this, you need to start doing that, that kind of thing. And then he goes into parables, or what I call code speak. And that's when he starts going wrong. And he starts talking in terms, and the way I describe it is, when you're finally up to your butt in Romans, and they have thrown you out and burned your temple and destroyed the place, you can go back to my words and you can read them and you can find out why you're here and what you need to do to correct yourself so you can get back. So in that sense, a prophet will go long and speak eternal things, but that's not the first thing that they do. They typically call for a pen. And my very favorite example, if you spend any length of time in the Christian church, which all of you have spent lots of time in the Christian church, you will inevitably hear somebody pray, oh God, our righteousness is like filthy rags, and on and on and on. And I don't particularly like that prayer. The reason for that is that the filthy rags comment is, I believe, in Isaiah, and it's specific to a time and a place in Israel where Israel is doing the form of temple worship, but their society has become corrupt. So what Isaiah says to them is, all of this piety that you guys are putting on smells to me like dirty diapers because your hearts have become wicked. It is not a general comment on human righteousness. God tells you to be righteous. And to the extent that you're trying to do what you think God would have you do and you're trying to live a righteous life, you don't smell like dirty diapers to him. When you start having the external form of piety covering up a corrupt heart in a corrupt system, that's when it smells bad to him. So this sort of general See, I'm really, really humble because my righteousness is like filthy rags and on and on and on. I'm suggesting to you that that's pious nonsense. So, that brings us to the third voice. And the third voice is the voice of the king or the voice of the council. Neither a prophet nor a priest. And their voice, and this is why I'm stopping here right now, because this first chunk of Proverbs that we just read is a perfect example. The voice of the king is human wisdom. Now, there is nothing in the Torah that I know of that says, do not co-sign alone. It's just not in the Torah. So there's nothing in the Bible that God says, thou shalt not co-sign alone. It just isn't there. So this idea of don't co-sign alone is not, thus saith the Lord, which is what the priest would come down with, or you guys are not co-signing loans and people are getting kicked out of their houses and all that kind of stuff, which might be what the prophet would say. 
this is the wisdom of a king. Uh, if this guy doesn't have the creditworthiness to get a loan from somebody reputable, the fact that he's trading on his friendship with you is putting you in grave danger because the guy's a deadbeat. That's human wisdom. And human wisdom tends to be conservative. It tends to be wise. It tends to be based on experience, just as this is. So this is a perfect example of what I would call the third voice, or what Lord Sachs would call the third voice, which is the voice of the king or the voice of the council written by Solomon. And this is simply human wisdom based on experience, certainly the experience of godly men. I'm not suggesting this is pagan human wisdom. It is human wisdom garnered by believers who are trying to live their lives in accordance with God's rules, and they're saying, God didn't talk about co-signing alone, but I'm going to. It's not wise. And that's why I went into this again, because this is a perfect example of the voice of the king, if you will. Do we have any questions on co-signing loans? I do spend quite a bit of time on it when I teach young people, because they're the ones that are typically vulnerable to this. Verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. Again, human wisdom. Now, what's obviously being said there is a couple of things. One, you can learn by example, so watch something that's successful, in this case an ant. But the thing about the ant that is important here is not having any chief, officer, or ruler. That's the important part of this. And what it says is, if you're going to sit around to wait for somebody to pick you up and tell you what to do and move you along and make you profitable, you're going to sit there a long time. You have got to get up and you've got to do it yourself without having somebody tell you what to do. That's the essence of that proverb. So verse 9. How long will you lie there, O slugger? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Obviously a continuation of before, but this is actually an intensification. So the first one is you've got to be a self-starter. But the second one is there's always a temptation to procrastination. So even if you have gone out and found something for yourself to do, you can ruin that by not being diligent at it. Verse 12. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with a perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment he will be broken beyond healing. Now there's again a progression there. You have a worthless person, a wicked man, and he goes about with crooked speech, lying eye, you know, winks the eye, which is to say, we all know what was going on here, you know, that kind of a, of a wink, and sort of subtle signs with his hands, which show those who are in the know what's really going on, as opposed to what he's actually saying. So his words go one way, but your wink says something entirely different. So this is the case where body language is saying something different than the mouth is saying. And the 
purpose of what he is doing in all these cases is to sow discord, to cause dissension within the community. And he thinks he's clever. He thinks he's one of the cool ones. He thinks that he and his crowd, you know, we know what's going on. And Ferris Bueller, anybody ever seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Uh, the other one, I'm dating myself, Eddie Haskell from Leave it to Beaver. Anyway, the whole idea is everybody around this guy thinks that he is a fine, upstanding, paragon of virtue, kind of guy you want your daughter to date, really nice guy, but he's not. That's a facade that he puts on for the other parents, for the people in school, for the teachers in school, and all that kind of stuff. Everybody in authority thinks that he is really, really a good guy. But in fact, he's not. That's the kind of guy that is being talked about here. So 12 through 15, the worthless person, the wicked man with crooked speech and so forth, I'm suggesting to you is Ferris Bueller. Or another way to say it is the teacher's pet in class. As far as the teacher's concerned, this is the most wonderful person in the class, wonderful person in the school, et cetera, et cetera. But everybody around him or her knows this is a rotten person. In the case of Ferris Mueller, except for the vice principal who was on to him and kept trying to catch him. And what this proverb says is at some point that vice principal is going to succeed. And it will happen when Bueller is least expecting it. It will happen when Bueller thinks that he has gotten away with another one and he's going to be nabbed and will be destroyed in that process. 16. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination to him. And obviously this is a Hebrew idiom. Six things that the Lord hates, and yeah, I'll give you a seventh, as in an intensification. So it's a Hebrew idiom, happens other places in Scripture. So there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. And what I will suggest to you is that ties it back to verse 14, which is our smart ass who is continually sowing discord. And what I will suggest to you is 16 through 19 do in fact represent a progressive intensification. And the end of it, which is what God really detests, number seven, is one who sows discord among brethren. And that goes back to our worthless person of verse 12, who is also sowing discord. Shedding innocent blood, there's one person that's destroyed. And that's bad, I agree. But sowing discord disrupts the whole community, potentially, fatally. The other thing that I will suggest in this 16 through 19. So six things that the Lord hates, seven are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. This is all rooted in pride. You know, haughty eyes is clearly pride. A lying tongue is one who will say whatever it is to benefit himself. And then, of course, shedding innocent blood. And the thing about shedding innocent blood is what you've decided in doing that is my life would be better without you. I am worth way more to me than you are. 
because my life would be better without you and I am worth so much more than you are, I'll just get rid of you. And then from that, the next step is a heart that devises wicked plans and feet that make haste to run to evil. Remember earlier in Proverbs, it was talking about not falling into the company of the wicked. And I think the quote is, they can't sleep unless they have done evil. They are zealous at doing evil and they don't feel good when they haven't. Certainly it's in Proverbs 2, starting in verse 11. Discretion will watch over your understanding, will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of uprightness, to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil, and delight in the perverseness of evil, and men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. There's actually one that says that they can't sleep unless they've done evil. On to chapter 6, verse 20. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always, tie them around your neck. Remember we have wisdom as being ornaments and graceful garlands around your neck and this idea of wisdom being an ornament. And I find it interesting in verse 20. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. That isn't to say that a mother can't command and a father can't teach, but a commandment is more stringent than is a teaching. So for example, as I was saying earlier, the whole book of Proverbs is teaching, teaching wisdom. But you're not sinning if you co-sign for somebody's loan. It's not a commandment. So Proverbs tends to be teaching, so the idea of your father having authority to command, whereas your mother's role is teaching, I just find the juxtaposition interesting. 20 again. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always and tie them around your neck. 22. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life, to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Remember, this is aimed at young men. That's the primary audience. So now what we're going to do is talk about uh, sex and when not to do it. With whom not to do it is a better way to say that. The rest of the chapter here is going to be in the context of forbidden sexual relations. And I find that it's interesting if we take the father's commandment and the mother's teaching in the context, I will suggest that the father and the mother each have something different to say about a forbidden relationship. In the father's case, what you have is the practical, if you do this, you're going to go down to destruction and so forth. We'll have all of that. The mother is in a position of being able to alert the kid to the tactics that would be used by a woman in trying to seduce a foolish young man. Both perspectives are of use in preventing this young fool from going astray. The other thing is 24 preserve you from the evil woman from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. And again, the idea here is seduction. 
It is not somebody coercing you into doing something. It's somebody convincing you to do something. So verse 25. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Now, there's a couple of different translations of that, and I will give them all to you, or at least a couple of them, because they're very different senses. Let's start with the one from English Standard, verse 26. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. You could take that one to be if you're going to go astray, go astray with a professional. Do not go astray with your neighbor's wife because your exposure, if you will, with a professional is a loaf of bread. In other words, the price of the assignation. Whereas your exposure with your neighbor's wife is far more grave. That's one way to look at it. This translation would lead you to look at it that way. Now I'm going to take you to the Tanakh, which is a different translation. It says, the last loaf of bread will go for a harlot. A married woman will snare a person of honor. That leads you to believe that if you stumble into illicit sexual relationships, you are going to spend your last loaf of bread on sex as opposed to building your household, building your life, and so forth. In other words, you will dissipate all of your worldly goods on sexual relationships, which is exactly what the prodigal son does. Remember, the prodigal son goes off and he spends his third of his father's estate, wastes it on fast women and loose cows or whatever. But he dissipates himself. So the Tanakh here would certainly give that flavor whereas the English Standards translation of it is, if you're going to go astray, do it with a professional. Don't do it with your neighbor. You can do anything you want to with that. I'm just presenting the translations to you. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so I'm not capable of refereeing between them. Presumably the people who wrote both of them are Hebrew scholars and know what they're talking about. Verse 27. Can a man carry a fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? And again, the Tanakh, I actually kind of like better. Can a man rake embers into his bosom without burning his clothes? That's pretty graphic. And again, this is all in the context of a married woman. Can a man walk on live coals without scorching his feet? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. So the idea here is, if you're starving and you steal some bread, if you get caught, you're going to get punished and it's going to cost you something. But it isn't nearly as bad as committing adultery. That's the sense of that. It is not by way of encouraging theft. It's a heavy and light argument. You know thieving is bad, but under some circumstances you can sort of get away with it. But adultery, there's no way out. People do not despise a thief if he steals, which is to say your reputation in the community could be 
resurrected even if you steal and get caught. So the idea here is your reputation can be resurrected even if you fall to the place where you have to steal to get your bread. This is not endorsing stealing for your bread. It's simply saying that's bad. Adultery is far worse. That's the heavy and light argument. Verse 33, wounds and dishonor will he get, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. He, the adulterer, will get beaten up by the husband of the one that he fools around with. Furthermore, the husband of the woman who is an adulterous woman will not have any mercy on you because the Torah says that the penalty for adultery is stoning. And it says he will accept no compensation, which is to say you will not be able to give him anything to get out of this because he will be so angry at what you have done. And he will insist on the full punishment. Chapter 7. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers and write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend, to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. So this is the father now talking commandments and teaching, and he says you need to internalize this so you are not captured by the smooth words of the adulteress. Verse 6. For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house, in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. So he looks out and he's seen somebody who is simple, and a youth. Those two things are almost synonymous. So the idea that a youth who lacks experience is also simple is to be expected. And the purpose of Proverbs is to cure the youth of his simplicity so that he doesn't have to lose a lot of skin in the process of gaining wisdom. So he looks out and he sees what's obviously a young man who is naive. Simple and naive are very similar. It could be translated as naive. And he sees the wayward woman. Verse 10. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. The Tanakh says, dressed as a harlot with set purpose. So the idea there is she is out to stray. So she's dressed herself appropriately, and she is set on making a conquest. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. With bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. What I think that is although the word for sacrifice there is a peace offering. What I think that is, is she is coming out of her two weeks of uncleanness. Her menses is a week, and then there's a week where she is unclean, even though she's not flowing. 
And so I'm assuming what it means here is I have passed my two-week period. But I'm not entirely sure because of the sacrifice part. So verse 14 again. I had to offer sacrifices today. I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian women. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves in love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey and took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. So my husband is off on a business trip, and I'm not expecting him until the end of the month. That's what that says. In that process, she has decided to go out and have a little fun, and she has latched onto a naive young man, flattered him. Well, you get the picture. Verse 21. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her, as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast. Till an arrow pierces its liver, a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. The thing about sin, of course, is sin is fun. And the other thing about sin is the retribution for sin happens at some time delay from the action. And there is always the temptation to believe once that time delay kicks in that you have gotten away with it. And there will be no consequences. So the temptation then is to go ahead and do the sin with the idea that you're going to be able to escape the consequences. And that's what's happening. And of course, uh, Solomon is saying, is nah, it isn't going to work that way. So 24. And now, O sons, listen to me, and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. This is not saying that this particular woman is particularly prolific at clobbering souls. It's simply saying that type is pervasive enough, and the young men who fall for it are often enough that the net of it is there's a whole bunch of people who have been brought to ruin by this. And notice that we had an earlier one that was sort of an equal opportunity thing. This one is strictly aimed at the guy and the woman is straying. Earlier we had the case where you had two foolish people who fall into a sexual relationship. And Kay's comment was the woman in this case is the sweet young thing that goes to the mall with yoga pants and crop top and looking for fun and the guy is going to the mall looking for the same thing and they are both foolish. Here the woman is predatory and she's after this naive young man. Perfect example. This is a cougar in today's vernacular. Sort of a older married woman whose husband is not around or not around consistently and she's on the make. That would be what this is in today's language. So with that, have you all been dissuaded from adultery now? I hope. <laughs>